If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are delighted this morning to welcome our guest speaker, Emily Bounds. Emily is a community organizer trained in the tradition of the Industrial Areas Foundation. She currently serves as a senior organizer for Action in Tulsa. Emily started her organizing career as a member of Mayflower and a leader on the core organizing team. She also spent time as the Mayflower Youth Director before moving to Texas to pursue organizing full time. Emily spent three years organizing in West Texas where at the height of the pandemic, the organization created and passed a mental health voucher program providing free mental health care for Lubbock residents. Emily is a member of Fellowship Congregational United Church of Christ in Tulsa and is active with the Kansas-Oklahoma Conference of the UCC. Please join me in welcoming home Emily Bounds. Let's bow our heads together. It's fine, Holy One. We're fine. Everything's fine. Do we not seem fine? Everyone else thinks that we are fine. For as the saying goes, raw and hard-boiled often look the same from the outside. But that's the trouble with you, Holy One. While we look at the outward appearance, you look at the heart and you know that everything is not fine. You know that while our nails are done and our tie is on straight, we are struggling to keep it together. Nothing is the way it used to be. Nothing is how it should be. We are struggling to be the strong one, the patient one, the kind one, we are struggling to keep a stiff upper lip, but we so badly need a break. We need to hear an apology and to offer a few ourselves. We need to pull the covers over our head and shake our fist at the sky. And you also know the parts of our heart that are starting to harden, Holy One, as if that will keep us from being disappointed 
again, as if it will make the news of another mass shooting less terrifying, as if we can ignore the pain and hurt happening all around us. Our hearts are starting to harden, too, against those who keep making life more difficult for the rest of us just because they can. We do not want to pray for them, and we certainly do not want to love them. We want to burn their house to the ground like they are trying to burn ours to the ground. We don't know how this works, Holy One, only that when we are still, when we tell you exactly what's going on, when we loosen our white knuckle grip and open our hearts to you, that we are able to find our breath, even if it is just for a moment. So perhaps you can help us collect these small moments. Perhaps we can do this enough for a full minute of peace. And then, then would you help us stretch them into a way of life? We trust that you know how it works. We pray in the name of Jesus, who was always going off to find a quiet place to talk to you. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord... Is it good for us to be here? If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Good morning, Mayflower. I bring you greetings from Reverend Chris Moore and Fellowship Congregational UCC in Tulsa. It's an honor to be here with you this morning, and frankly, it's great to be home. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. The Transfiguration of Jesus is one of the five major events in the Gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Baptism, transfiguration, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Now I don't know about you, but I haven't spent as much time pondering the transfiguration of Jesus, especially in comparison to the crucifixion and resurrection. 
In this story, Jesus goes with Peter, James, and his brother John up Mount Tabor. Now, I'd like to take a moment and I'd like for you to close your eyes and picture yourself as Peter. You've hiked up the mountain with your friends and teacher. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining with big clouds rolling through the sky. You have a day's worth of water and a couple of tents in your pack. It was about a 2,000 foot climb, a decent change in elevation. So when you reach the top and set your things down to get a drink of water, as the water quenches your thirst, you look up and see Jesus in a ray of light. You sort of hit James on the arm to get his attention and point over to Jesus so that he can see what's happening. John notices something is going on and looks up as well. You all see Jesus' clothes turn a brilliant white and he is transfigured in front of your eyes. When you see Moses and Elijah appear and begin talking to Jesus, you know something extraordinary is happening. You recognize this holy moment and spring into action, offering to pitch tents for everyone. You don't even finish your sentence when a bright cloud moves overhead and you hear the voice of God tell you that Jesus is the beloved son and to listen to him. You go from tent pitching mode to being absolutely terrified. Did that cloud just talk? James and John are also overcome with fear and you all fall to the ground. Jesus comes to each of you, touches you on the shoulder, and says his classic line, do not be afraid. Mocking him, you think to yourself, do not be afraid. You're always telling us not to be afraid, but we just heard God tell us you were their son from a cloud. This whole thing is terrifying. You all dust yourself off and gather your things to head back down the mountain. As you are hiking down the trail, Jesus basically tells you to keep your mouth shut until he is raised from the dead. Great, you think. Not only was this terrifying, but now I can't even process what happened with anyone until my teacher and friend is raised from the dead. Nope, not afraid at all. End scene. You can open your eyes now. In a classic interpretation of this text, Peter, all of us, gets the critique that he wants to stay on the top of the mountain in this holy experience of God. But when I put myself in Peter's hiking shoes, I can't blame him. An experience of God and the holy is beautiful, and who wouldn't want to stay there? We all need these moments for clarity and rejuvenation. But in our story, Jesus didn't say, Peter, why don't you go ahead and pitch those tents? Let's see what other great prophets show up. And that ray of light, man, it really did great things for my skin. <laughs> Instead, Jesus led them back down the mountain to return to the people. In September, I chose to take a two-day silent retreat at the Osage Forest of Peace. One of the first things I did was hike out to one of the highest points on the trail and sit on a rock to observe nature. Across the forest, at treetop, the, there was a treetop at eye level where I saw a red-headed woodpecker hammering away at a tree. I chuckled watching his dedication and ferocity at the task before him. A few minutes later, an owl came swooping in, running the woodpecker off. With her stoicism and majesty, she sat and watched over the forest floor. In my moments of mindfulness, like Peter, I experienced the holy on the mountaintop. 48 hours spent in silence, reading, and reflection was a gift 
but I could not stay. It was tempting though. I had my own small cabin in the middle of nature, the generous staff prepared meals each day after meditation, and my only responsibility was to encounter myself and the holy. Now, I didn't walk down the mountain scared out of my mind because I was told by a cloud that my teacher was the son of God. But, like Peter, I followed Jesus back to my home and back to the people. My career and vocation is to be among the people. I am a community organizer trained in the tradition of Saul Alinsky, Ernesto Cortez, and the Industrial Areas Foundation. I currently serve as the senior organizer for Action in Tulsa, and I got started in this work as a member of the Mayflower Corps team with Voice, Action's sister organization. This is where I learned what it truly means to be with the people. But to understand my journey, we have to rewind at least a decade. 10 years ago, I was not a church person. I had a master's degree, four part-time jobs, and no health insurance. My experience of the church was a place that was not only irrelevant to my life, but hypocritical and painful. In 2009, my parents, Mike and Debbie Bounds, were active members of Mayflower in 363. They had been inviting me to church in 363 for months, and I finally said yes to 363. I wasn't up for church, but serving food to the homeless at the Homeless Alliance was something I could get down with. For weeks, I showed up and served desserts with Mayflowerites and got to know people like Steve, Diane, Dale, Carolyn, and Angela. Hmm. These are church people? Interesting. One day, after about 752 invitations to join them on Sunday, I finally decided to show up. In many ways, I experienced my own transfiguration in coming to Mayflower. My growth as a spiritual being was, of course, influenced by the preaching from this pulpit. But ultimately, my transfiguration came through relationships with you all. The people of 363 who got me in this building, the Mayflower millennials where I found fellowship and friends, my time with the youth group and watching them grow, and my experiences with our Mayflower core team where we were doing the work of justice together. Howard Thurman writes in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, that knowing you are a child of God stabilizes the ego. Mayflower, you have loved me and taught me that in spite of my flaws, my mistakes, and being gay, that I am a child of God. This is a holy experience. My formation at Mayflower and with voice led me to pursue organizing as a profession. I remember when I told my mom that I was going to move to Texas to train to be an organizer, she responded with tears and humor saying, I just wanted you to come to church. I didn't meet, know it would make you leave. <laughs> I came back, that's what matters, right? <laughs> For me, the call to the vocation of community organizing is rooted in our benediction. Every Sunday, we are asked to leave this assembly to go out into the world and love one another. Every single 
other. But what does it mean to love? And who is every single other? As Mayflower, we know we are called to love our neighbors who are immigrants, trans, gay, black, Muslim, or atheist. But what about our neighbors who watch Fox News? Who didn't get vaccinated? Who make big money in oil and gas? Or are worried about critical race theory being taught in schools? Are we called to love them? If so, how? In his book, Roots for Radicals, Ed Chambers talks about the most radical tool that is at the foundation of the way that we organize, relational meetings. Properly understood, Chambers says, a relational meeting is not a science, not a technique, but an art form. It is one, it is one organized spirit going after another person's spirit for connection, confrontation, and an exchange of talent and energy. In Tulsa, Action recently completed a thousand conversation campaign where Lutherans, Unitarians, teachers, neighborhood organizations, tenants, UCCs, promotoras, Catholics, and disciples all came together to hold these conversations. Leaders then gathered to talk about what they learned. We learned that in spite of our differences, our families were facing shared pressures. Earlier this month, in a bilingual meeting, 150 people gathered from 17 institutions to agree to work together on a common agenda related to mental health, education, tenant protections, economic opportunities, local infrastructure, and community safety. Together, these leaders will research and create strategies to address these specific issues. The team of leaders at the core of this organization have deep relationships both in their institutions and across their differences. This is the key to rebuilding our democracy. In our thousand conversations, we probed and listened carefully, and another common theme that arose was the presence of loneliness and a hunger for connection. In her book, An Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor talks about individuals who identify as spiritual but not religious, and posits that this may be the name for a longing for more meaning, more feeling, more connection, and more life. Our society today is more divided now than ever. It benefits power and organized money for regular people to be divided, not organized, in relationship. So, they author 3,000 bills to legislate morality, get us reacting, and divide us even more. We have retreated into ideological camps where dog whistles and buzzwords tell us who is friend and who is foe. Our Congress and state legislature choose to withdraw into camps to preserve ideological purity and to protect their power at all costs, rather than meet in the public square to work together across difference and negotiate what is best for people. And we, Mayflower, are complicit. We must admit that we are afraid. We are afraid for our children and friends who are trans. We are afraid for our loved ones who are black, our friend who is here without papers, for the economic future of our kids and grandkids. And if we really dig deep for ourselves, 
I often hear in predominantly white middle-class congregations that we don't really have any pressures. We just want to help those other people. Now, do you remember the first story I shared? When I started coming to Mayflower, I was working four part-time jobs and had no health insurance. It wasn't until Chris King, the lead organizer for Voice at the time, asked me if not having health insurance made me angry. Hmm, I never thought about that. The only emotion I had considered was shame. Walter Brueggemann talks about the costly loss of lament and the importance of making our private pain public. When we create the space for real conversations in our congregations and with others, we realize that we are not alone and that maybe there is something we can do about it. In the IAF, we build local broad-based organizations to build relational power, to create meaningful relationships, and to give people hope. When Alinsky was organizing in the 1940s to the 1970s, the social fabric of our society looked different. Women were mostly staying at home, our institutions were thriving, and people knew their neighbors. In Robert Putnam's 2000 book, Bowling Alone, he talked about the degradation of social life as shown by the decrease in participation in bowling leagues. Putnam, nor Alinsky, could have imagined that a global pandemic would further isolate Americans and threaten the basic existence of our democracy. We, Mayflower, have a choice. Will we continue to succumb to the vitriol of our dominant culture, or are we willing to show our community the love of God and be acted upon by the teachings of Jesus? Bell Hooks tells us that love is not merely a feeling, but rather love is a verb. It is active. Love is what we do. Mayflower, you showed me that I was a child of God through your love. Through being my friend and investing in our relationships and by allowing me to grow. You didn't make me take a religious test to make sure I believed the right things before you invested in me. We must extend that same grace to every single other because when we do that, our worlds expand. In 1966, Father Peach, Peter Schultz, a Catholic priest from Chicago, wrote my favorite hymn, They'll Know We Are Christians By Our Love. He wrote this hymn in the shadows of the Civil Rights Movement, the Vietnam War, and the conclusion of the Second, Second Vatican Council of the Catholic Church. Young people were expressing great disillusionment in the direction of American culture, and he was calling on the church to respond. This hymn was a charge to the gathered assembly that they, those people, will not know we are Christians by our experience of God, by our profession of faith, or our perfect ideological standards. No, they will know we are Christians by our love. Be curious about each other, Mayflower. Do not be afraid. Now, let's go down the mountain and be among the people. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org. 
or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m., with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.